Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members and guests at IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Dr. Tupa Guerra is the professor of ancient studies at Israel Bible Center. She is a historian who specializes in the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, she has a new course coming out this year about good and evil in Qumran. I am very excited for this course, and I didn't want to wait for it to come out, so I invited her on the podcast to give us an exclusive sneak peek at the content in the course. We start with one of the amazing results of finding the scrolls. Before the discovery, the Masoretic text was the authoritative Hebrew and Aramaic text of the Tanakh, or the Hebrew Bible. That text was copied and edited between the 7th and 10th century CE, or of the Common Era. And since those are fairly recent dates, there were questions floating around about how much faith we can have in these biblical texts. When we don't have older copies to compare with the Masoretic text to see if the copies were even accurately copied. And then the scrolls were found. These are scrolls that include copies of biblical text along with original Second Temple writings. Suddenly, we had documents roughly 1,000 years older than the Masoretic text, meaning we could compare and see. Did we have accurate copies of the scrolls? Dr. Garrett joins us to explain how exciting this discovery was. That's another thing, because, of course, the the Dead Sea Scrolls are, in many cases, the oldest copies we have of the texts. And it's fascinating to see, first of all, how much the texts kept... Uh, how they are they're similar and how they didn't change much with time. And for me, this is fascinating because I there was this thing about when I was growing up, uh, learning from other people and people say, oh, the priests in the medieval age, they changed the texts. And then I look, I look at the text and they're like, oh yeah, actually they didn't. The, the texts are very, very like, they, they, they keep the way, it's good. And so for biblical studies, it's also this amazing group of texts that we finally can see older versions of the of the Pentateuch of all the books in the canon, and we can compare them. And actually, the Book of Tobit it's one of that's very interesting because for a long time there wasn't there was a lot of debate that was were there a copy of the Book of Tobit in Hebrew and Aramaic or was it a later book. That's one of the reasons the Book of Tobit wasn't included in the Protestant version of the Bible when Luther was doing his version and thinking about the canon because he thought there wasn't proof that this was a proper ancient text. And then we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
five copies or six copies of the Book of Tobit in Hebrew and Aramaic. So we know the Book of Tobit is at least from the Second Temple period and might be older. And that's another a lot of debate. But so for biblical studies, the scrolls give us so much material to work and to compare and to think about the different versions and copies that were made. Because we know every time we translate something, you do get some differences. But we can now compare the Masoretic text with those texts that are are at least sometimes a thousand years older than the Masoretic text. And then we can compare with the Septuagint. We can compare with all the other texts we have. And we can see how the text developed. And we can see what, what kept the same. And we can see the differences. For instance, we have one of the texts I I work at Psalm 91, of course, and <laughs> there was a copy in the Dead Sea Scrolls and it's fascinating to see, is it different from the copies we have today or is it very similar? And it's very similar. Uh, the majority of the wording is there and it didn't change that much. The way those texts were kept for so long, it's beautiful and fascinating at the same time. Last week, Dr. Garam mentioned being interested in prayers and why they were written down. Was it for distribution? Was it meditative? Answering that question is hard because we don't have access to the people to say, what was going on in your head? I wanted to know how Dr. Gara determines what ancient people thought about uh, demons, magic, or prayers. And that's well, for me, that's the most fascinating part of the work, <laughs> because one of the things we do, it's to look, first of all, into the texts and not only the texts that are canon, but all the texts and trying to find references, not only about the prayer written down, but prayer in context. So I'm using the Book of Tobit a lot because I know a lot of the Book of Tobit. But in the Book of Tobit, you have prayer being said in specific moments so this gives us some hints of how people would pray, or at least some prayers were being said. And so before, uh, after the wedding or after go before going to bed, and how was this in the daily practice? And of course, this doesn't tell us precisely what happened. It tells us what people wrote about what happened, which is different from what happened. But then we compare that and we compare that with archaeological findings. So do we find texts of prayers in different places? So do we find texts of prayer in different places in a house? Or do we find uh, other prayers inscribed in other types of materials? Let's say uh, wood or metal or stone. And what does it mean? It doesn't mean people were using it for protection because the word of God protects you. And then, or does it mean it was an easier way to carry or a more durable way to have the prayer with you? And then we have to remember most, the majority of people wouldn't be able to read. So why do you have something written down if you don't read? And then, of course, <clears throat> we, we compare with other cultures in the same period because Jewish culture, as amazing and unique it was, it was also related to all the other cultures around them. They were not like excluded from the the world around them. So when we see also what other cultures are doing with prayer and with those practices, it's not the same, but it can give us hints of how people behaved on that period. So we are going to put all those small hints together 
it's like being a historian in a way. It's just like being a detective, kind of a Sherlock Holmes thing, where we get those fine threads and just those the small indiciary things and then we put them together and try to figure out what happened and of course one important thing about the past is we will never know all the past it's impossible to know all the past but we can get we can have we can study and get as closer as we can get and we can tell how people related to things and magic Magic is a complicated topic because usually we study magic from the from the perspective of what's forbidden. And we have plenty of texts saying, oh, necromancy is forbidden. And this other type of magic is forbidden. But at the same time, we do have those practices attested in the Bible. Sometimes not necessarily forbidden. And so to look at magic, I know magic has this, uh, it's a strong term and people who wouldn't say, oh, this is magical. So ritual, maybe it's the best term to use and to understand how texts were being used in a ritualistic way for people, not necessarily against the the commandments of God. No, but if you were not familiar with Jewish religion and you were from somewhere else, you might see people praying, thinking, oh, are they doing some type of magic? Just from the outside perspective. And of course, they are not doing it, a magical thing, because they are doing a God's commandment. They are not doing something against the religion. But that's part of the things that are interesting. And that's why it's so fascinating to look at other cultures and to see how they also practice religion in the same period. I'm so glad you brought up magic. I was going to ask you specifically (laughs) about that, because there is a lot, as you were saying, about what does that word even mean? What is magic and who's defining what magic is? It is interesting to think in terms of of ritual. Is ritual magic? I guess it kind of depends on who's defining it. Yeah. And I would say when you take something from a historian or a theologian or so on, often the first chapter is like definitions. Right. And <laughs> right. <laughs> we tend to go like very long time on why we are using those terms, why we decide to use them and how we are using them. Because in academic writing, we don't usually go for the same, we don't speak in the same way as people speak. I tend to say to my students, you're at university and you're learning a new language, which is academic language. And sometimes I feel that maybe we should breach and not not have this bigger difference between academic language and like normal language. But still, that's how it is. So we spend a lot of time defining and working on how things are going to be said and how what we mean when we say magic, what we mean when we say things. And from my perspective in my work, and that's a very particular thing, I tend to use magic only as a work tool. It's not a definition that I people would use for themselves. It's a definition that helps me as a scholar today to look at the past and see patterns and think about how those patterns work together. So I, I'm, I'm not saying that people would say what they are doing were magic. And then we have this intersection between magic, ritual, religion, because sometimes we tend to say it's religion when it's ours and it's magic when it's the other's. Sometimes the other probably is looking at us and saying, oh, you're doing the magic. I'm doing the religion. So 
magic it's definitely a term that varies for the person who is defining it it varies and it has it's really charged because we have prohibition of magic in the bible so a lot of people get scared when they see the word magic and because it's a sin because it's explicitly forbidden and that's when as scholars we say we are doing a different thing as scholars we are not working on the prohibitions we are not saying from the perspective of the insider we are trying to analyze from the perspective of the outsider but there is also people who study from the perspective of the insider and what was forbidden what was not and how people navigate because we know that one thing is the text and another thing is the daily life and although we want to think about the past as this idyllic place where people actually follow the text we know that's not true. We know that people are people and they follow as the, the best as they can. Sometimes they don't have access to the whole texts and sometimes they don't read. Sometimes they may practice something that other group of people that were also Jews would say, oh, you're doing magic. And they're like, no, you are doing magic. And then, so there is this dichotomy of things. I always worry when I talk about magic because I don't want people to think I'm I'm saying they're sinning or saying that their religion is is doing something that God didn't. That's not the point. The whole point is to try to understand how complex life is and how people, although people try their best to follow things, sometimes you do other stuff. It's okay because no one is perfect and humans were not perfect in the past. Since we're talking about magic, I feel like we should just throw demons into the mix too. I mean, what do we know about Second Temple time period and what would they define as a demon and what actually is a demon? When when you have done seminars with IBC, you have specifically mentioned the idea that we tend to think of demons as these red-skinned, horned, tail. That's a modern version of a demon. So what did they think about even the existence of demons? And also the whole idea of the word demon, which is a later word. It's not a word Jews would use, and it doesn't appear in the Second Temple period. You do have the Shedim, which is a similar maybe translation, but still not perfect. What we can say is people believed in that evil things were around them. There were evil things, but it's not clear. And there wasn't like this huge book of demons where with all organized things. This is more like a medieval thing. In the medieval times, they really like to do big books of demons and try to say who is the who is ruling the who is ruling hell and who is doing the what and who is so there was this very specified roles for different types of demons. But in ancient times, uh evil is a problem. Evil is around. Usually evil can get to you when you don't follow the God's word. So you get vulnerable when you don't think you don't, you don't do the things you were supposed to do. And that's when evil can get to you. It's not very clear from the text if they thought about demons are this personified thing or more about this evil influence that could get to you. We know for sure people associated disease with evil influences and demons or what we would call demons. It's very likely that the demons were, they have different 
the demon for this particular disease, the demon for that particular disease. But there isn't like a catalog that describes the demon itself or the name of the demon. And sometimes they use the same name for different things, which also show us that because there wasn't this central catalog of demons, different people thought about them in different ways and they they interpreted them in different ways. We know they had lists. We know they have. They were scared of things. They, we know they. It was a very uh, palpable threat. We know that uh, evil was something that could get to you at any moment. So we have this atmosphere of fear in the text, which is constant, and you should be always be vigilant because uh, evil things can get to you at any moment, and that's really important. But we don't have, we have names, we have mentions, for instance, of Lilith, but it's more like not the Lilith that that pop culture can get got to us. It's much more like a type of demon that probably came, came from other cultures and that it's like a type of demon that can attack, especially newborn babies with child mortality and the we can associate like if a, if a child especially as a small baby got sick you could people would think oh it was it's a lilith that is attacking it and you need to pray and you need to try to protect it so we do know they believed in evil things they believed this this was this threat but there isn't an organized demonology yet there will be in particularly in medieval times and modern times but at that point it's really spread around and it's really different types of evil things. When you talk about a general atmosphere of fear and this almost, uh, we can't quite put our finger on it, but there's evil that's about to penetrate my being. I could see why out of that fear, people would develop certain types of rituals or habits to protect themselves and protect their families. So it comes back around to the magic conversation. Yeah. So is that you're finding that a lot of the rituals or things that are written are in response to a fear of what might come and get them? Yes, precisely. We call this apotropaic, which is a word I really like. And it means protection. It means something that you use for protection. When we have plenty of texts that talk about how uh, this evil thing is going to be bound and it's going to be sent to something far away, or how if you if you pray in this way you get protection, or if you because the the words of God can protect you, the law of God can protect you. There is still a lot to be researched about so how the law of god protects you is it following the law that protects you we know that there is some text especially the ones that are actually that we know they're from some sect or group that we don't know if there were these scenes or not that talks about how if you fell if you fall from one of the nets of bilio which is one of the evil guys things that's there if you fall to one of the nets that has three nets if you fall to one of them, it's more likely you fall to an, another one because you probably because you open yourself more to this. So that's why 
And in the text, it says that's why you need to be vigilant and that's why you need to pray and that's why you need to hold fast to God and you have to have your heart set in, settle in God because that's how you get protection. So it's not necessarily, although I talk about rituals and I think about this practice thing, like when you pray, what do you do with your hands? How you you position yourself? Because we think about prayer, we think much about ourselves today. And it might be different in the ancient times. We don't know, but we can speculate about. I think about this part of ritual and stuff, but at the same time, we have to think about, was it just living your life following God's commandments that made you safe? It might be. So it's difficult and fascinating at the same time. And that's why uh, there is, uh, let's me trying to get more people into the field. Like that's why we need more people researching because then we can have uh, different points of view on the texts and we can look at more texts. And when we look at more texts, we have more evidences and from more evidence, we can build a better picture of the past. <laughs> I love it. For anyone who might be wanting to do a PhD, Dead Sea Scroll community will welcome you with wide arms <laughs> into their <Yes>. field. <laughs> we are very nice. You can join us. <laughs> Sometimes we have cookies, not always. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you are building or have already built a course for IBC, Good and Evil in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So what is that course going to be like? Do you do an introduction to what the Dead Sea Scrolls are? Um, and then do you read a lot of text with the students? Yes. <laughs> so okay. the idea is to, uh, first of all, I want to do this introduction of what are the Dead Sea Scrolls? It's going to be a brief introduction so we can get to the best part of seeing how evil and good were portrayed in the text. And so we go through texts that are actually are still canon for us today and also texts that are not canon for us today. So we can have a sense of how those things uh, worried people and how people would change their lives and live their lives to avoid evil and to follow the path of good. As far as I can tell, or what the text shows us, that being good helps you avoid evil. So it, it feels that's very obvious, but at the same time, it's interesting to see how it's how it appears in the texts. And so we are going to go through that. I'm starting the recording process now, so it might be out soon. Great. Uh, the whole the the course is all done already. I just need to record it. So the idea is that is we're going to look at ancient texts and together we are going to look at how they talk about evil and how they talk about good because evil and good are the two sides that need to be together in some sense and how we can maybe at some point get rid of evil and live in a place where evil is no more. So that sounds so fun. I'm looking forward to you when it comes out. Um, I love I love going through everyone's courses. <laughs> I'm not an expert on Dead Sea Scrolls, so I want to learn from you, and I'm so excited. Even when we do seminars, I love when you you're bringing in all this text from the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's so fun to just see how we can hear these echoes of biblical text and other text, and how that refines the way that we think of text that is very familiar to us, maybe, and we can make it more three-dimensional somehow. Yeah, I 
I like to say people get scared when we say something is complex because we think complex means difficult. But actually, life is very complex and it's fun. So we shouldn't be scared of complexity. Complexity is amazing. We should get complex things around. Thinking about the text, having loads of layers and having loads of meanings and having this complexity is great. It's, it's actually way better for me. That's what, also what I get from IBC a lot, from like all the, the seminars and stuff, because I learn a lot. And as I said, I'm a historian. So sometimes the theological part for me, it's not that I don't know much. So it's fascinating to hear from everyone. And it's like, oh, wow. Wow, that's interesting. I never thought about this text in this way. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm excited for your course to come out. Uh, but thank you for your time today, for coming onto the podcast with me. It's so fun to hear about your field. I love it. Thank you so much for having me. It's so fun to talk about it. Yeah, I, I think I'm in love with my field. That's why I really like to talk about it. <laughs> If you love conversations like this, join us at IBC, where you have access to many amazing courses that dig into the details of culture and interpretation. You can even earn credit towards Israel Bible Center Certificate Program in Jewish Context and Culture. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with us and being curious about all things Bible-related. <laughs>